Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Merlene Gaybauer is a self-described knowledge heroine. After a successful stint as a practicing lawyer, Marlene became a law librarian, where she then transitioned into legal information management. She focuses on research, outreach and education, procurement, licensing, and management. Today, she's the Director of Knowledge Management at Lock Lord, where she drives adoption of innovative legal service technologies. In her spare time, she's co-host of the award-winning The Geek and Review podcast with a friend of our pod, Greg Lambert. In today's conversation, we talked about how an art kid ended up as a lawyer and legal industry innovator, how she went from being quiet to being co-host of a podcast, and what she's learned from over 160 episodes of The Geek and Review. It was a delightful discussion that I hope you enjoy. Hi, Marlene. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks so much for making the time to join us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Where in the world am I catching you today? You are catching me at home. I am working out of my home office today. It's a beautiful day here in Houston, a little hot, but uh, otherwise quite nice. It's a little hot here. I'm in Chicago and it's a little hot up here as well. (laughs) I did hear you were having a heat wave. We don't handle heat waves all that well. We handle the (laughs) snow and ice pretty well. You handle snow better than we handle the heat and vice versa. That's true. (laughs) We do. We do. My daughter just moved up here from Jackson, Mississippi, and she said she'd moved up to escape the heat. And she said, What's going on? What's happening here? What's happening here? This is not. She brought it with her. She did. She did. Well, as I said, thanks for making time to talk to us. Let's start a little bit by talking about your current position, Director of Knowledge Management. You've held a number of titles over your time, and there's a number of titles out in the industry, in the innovation space, the knowledge management space. At one point, you had a title of Director of Strategic Legal Insights. True. How do you see these disciplines differing from one another? Or if not, are these just different labels for people trying to accomplish similar things? Or do you see differences between roles people are playing? Well, I mean, there are differences between roles people are playing. I really do think, though, it, it kind of depends on the organization. You know, often I will say, like, if you're in knowledge management, what you do can vary greatly from place to place. In my old position, knowledge management was about basically getting information to people in a way that they could use it in the time that they needed. It also involved innovation, aspects of innovation and trying out new tools, testing new tools, rolling them out, evaluating adoption, working with analytics and how those could be used to support litigation as well as transactional efforts. In my current role, it looks a little bit different. So I handle the library team, I handle the training team and uh, IP docketing as well as an innovation role. And last year I was actually doing some other things. So it's it's sort of moved around. So I've supported litigation support, litigation docketing, intake and conflicts, as well as records. So so more of the information governance phase. And and you know, I think you will find that from place to place that will vary. Let's talk a little bit about how you got there. We'll come back to sort of how it fits in the strategy of the firm. So you want to be a fashion designer and you become a director of knowledge management. 
<laughs> yep. That's, that, that's, <laughs> that's that, not right. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating to me. So yeah. how does someone who wants to be a fashion designer wind up in law school? Let's start there. Well, I, I will preface it by saying, you know, many people who are 17 years old have, you know, have ideas about what they want to do and they do change over time. <laughs> so. they, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> so they do. But, uh, you know, I, I come from a house where uh, my mom was an art teacher and my dad was involved in the industry in the fashion industry so uh, making you know making material for sweaters basically and so that was surrounding me and you know from a very early age that you know I was just kind of immersed in that so you know you hear about band kids well I was one of the art kids so you know that was interesting but I've always liked to learn different things and so it's, it's always been like I'm not sort of like this just one thing interests me and that's really all I focus on. Like I do, I generally have always had a lot of a variety of different interests and like to try different things. So I was also interested in law. I was also, it's a funny story. Actually, we had a moot court team in high school and I was the court artist. <laughs> so, I, I, so I was actually- You were the one ske- sketching there? Yeah. So I was actually sketching people. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but I always had an interest in that. I mean, you know, LA Law, of course, was a big show at, at that time. I'm probably dating myself, but, you know, that kind of got people very engaged and interested in, in what, you know, lawyers do. And so that was another interest and, you know, decided ultimately to pursue that. I will also say that I like organizing things. I like fixing problems. You know, if you see that there's something out there that can be done better, I like to try and figure that out. And so I think that played a role in my interest in in law. It also played a role in my interest in knowledge management and innovation. So you go to law school, you come out of law school and you uh, you start practicing in in the health and healthcare industry. How was that experience? informed your subsequent career? What did, what did you learn that you've applied in later years? Well, it was a really interesting type of work. Um, you know, you're dealing with hospital staff and inspections and credentialing of doctors. And so it was a very different type of world than, than sort of what I was used to or what I had seen. You know, there's, there were no lawyers in my family, so I was kind of the first. And so this was, this was very different. And I think, you know, it taught me about how you comport yourself in those types of situations. It taught me a lot about how regulations work and the impact of those. It taught me about how to manage people as well. So, you know, a lot of these situations are, you know, stressful. I mean, if a hospital is going through an inspection, people are nervous. Obviously, they want to make sure that everything is right. Credentialing can be a stressful situation, particularly if the doctor, you know, might be problematic. And so we need to look at that. So it it sort of taught me how to manage people in those types of situations. And I think that's also been very valuable moving forward, both, you know, in terms of managerial types of responsibilities. I think I also read somewhere you were talking about you grew up not particularly liking public speaking or... (laughs) That's true. I was not a talker in, in school. I was I was very quiet. I know a lot of people will be like, what? Um, I was I was very quiet in school and it really wasn't. Well, two things. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Part of my degree, I have a dual degree in political science and broadcast journalism. And basically, when I was in the Honors College at Syracuse, a lot of my friends were, you know, in the Newhouse School. And I thought, oh, well, this will be a good exercise in terms of learning how to write well, learning how to present well, because again, I was 
pretty shy. And it did help a lot. And I think what really helped was law school and subsequently where I was just basically forced to do it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like cold turkey. It's like you have to, you know, you're sitting in your contracts class and, and you get called on and you have to speak. And I think that was that was very good for me. I mean, it wasn't very pleasant to have to learn that way, but uh, it definitely was a good opportunity. And again, being a practitioner, you have to talk to your clients, you have to present in court. So that was also something. And that's when I got into doing a lot more sort of educational public speaking, you know, for PLI and things like that, and decided that I actually kind of liked doing that. Um, you know, it wasn't as adversarial, I guess, as, as it is in, in litigation. And so got to be more exposed to speaking in those, those types of opportunities. It's interesting. I know a number of people, and I count myself among them, that have had similar stories that I would have been happy just to sit in the back of the classroom and exactly. never say a <laughs> word if they would let you, but they never let you. Yes, I know. They always found you. <laughs> they did. And like you, being a silent litigator was not really optimal for <laughs> no. a career in litigation. <laughs> Well, you're glad. I mean, they're good teachers because they found us, you know, and then that's what they're supposed to do. So I thank them for it. No, as as do I. And it is something you can get used to and get proficient at, even if it's not that much fun getting there. So you practice for a few years, five or six years, and then you go back and get a master's in library science. Because I just can't get enough. <laughs> you can't get enough, can't get enough degrees, huh? It's like, I can't, I can't, you know, again, I, it's, it's, I told you, I like to, I like to learn things. And I, I, my journey as, as a practitioner, you know, I found that what I enjoyed doing was doing the research and helping people do the research now. I mean, at the time, we didn't have a lot of the tools that we have now. So those were the innovative tools of the day. But, you know, I found myself a lot of times helping people who just didn't understand how these things worked and, you know, how can we make this work and, and basically doing, you know, work using the tools in a way that enhanced the output and enhance the experience for everybody. So I, you know, I decided, okay, well, this is really what I like to do. And I enjoy doing it. And I spoke to lots of people in the field before I made this jump and found that there was this whole career opportunity there that I really hadn't even known before. And said, okay, well, I'm going to go back and went to uh, Rutgers, which was very well known for their technology expertise at the time and, and sort of human computer interaction and how people look at a screen and how they find things. So there was a lot of design elements involved in, in our, our education. Also statistics. So again, we talked about data visualization and Tufty and sort of how things should look and how they should be presented in a way that people can understand very quickly. That sounds like a fascinating program and gave you a lot of good skills. It was a great program, still is. Yeah. So you come out, you become a law librarian. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to think of a, of a position in a law firm that's evolved more than, than that function. Talk to us how you've seen it evolve over the years you've been in the industry, starting from when you became a law librarian to your work as knowledge management. Yeah. So when I started, I was a legal researcher would make sense. I mean, given my background and that was, you know, pretty straightforward research. Um, we had online tools that we used. We also used the books. 
Oh, I remember the books. <laughs> we, we actually had a microfiche machine that we would use from time to time. So, oh, so my yeah, I know. Even at that time, it was a little dated. But, you know, every once in a while, there were certain types of content that that's what you needed to go back and use. So that was terrific. And again, a lot of focus on training people to get them used to the tools, how to use them, what types of information you can get out of them. And then there was there was sort of more of a shift to not so much the here's what we need. Can you provide it for us? But being more proactive, sort of coming up with products, if you will, that you could air quotes here, sell to people. And that I think. What do you mean by that? Give me an example. So you might want to put together a packet of, you know, different filings. So, I mean, if, if something comes in you know, from one of your transactional attorneys. And it's like, you want to get so all the basic filings for, you know, an entity you know the SEC filing. So you basically put that package together, you know, offer some highlights and tabulate it so that they can jump around quickly and then send that out. So that was something that we would do rather than wait for them to say, hey, get me, you know, get me a 10K, get me an 8K, whatever. So we started doing things like that. And I think that raised, those sort of things started raising the, the, um, the value of the research team, if you will, and that, that there was more of a understanding of, of the business. And so because you were being proactive about it, you, you understood what they needed based on the type of work that they were doing. I also think the work started to become more task related. So again, the more you started understanding about what the attorneys were doing, you could map your type of work to that. And again, again, sort of that business sense and understanding is, I think, really critical. And sort of from the research angle, what I saw, and I mean, my career trajectory is started moving more into knowledge management, which was kind of a newer, unique thing. And so it became more about how do we gather data? You know, how do we gather content in a way that makes sense for people to use in their, their business when they need it? So that could involve not only external resources that you would use for, for research, but also internal content that you would use to gain insights. And from there, things like analytics, you know, it's like uh, there were a lot of products that came on the market that really helped us in this journey. So you had a lot of things like, you know, maybe in the last seven, eight years or so that really kind of exploded on the market. A lot of them have gotten purchased since since then. but there was a lot of opportunity to use these types of tools and, and come up with insights that you just couldn't get before. Docket analytics, for example, that was just found information. I mean, that kind of stuff you could never do reasonably. You could do it, but it would take hours and hours and hours to compile all that stuff. So those types of tools kind of really helped us show how work could be done. You know, insights could be gained. And then also how work could be done differently. So tools like drafting assistance, where it's basically sort of going through your document and saying, okay, this is inconsistent. These definitions are inconsistent. Here's a numbering mistake. Here's recommended language that we might give you. All of those things were, were again, were not anything that anybody had access to before. And it was really being able to help speed the work. I think that was also you know, another area where it, it has changed greatly. And now we're at a point where, you know, you have a lot of these tools, a lot of focus on adoption, 
and getting people to use them, getting people to trust them, getting people to make it part of their workflow and actually finding tools that will work with your workflow. You know, a lot of these cool things came out, but, you know, maybe it required people to really make a lot of changes and and, in how they did their work. And so people didn't want to do that. So now you're seeing, I think, more integration into and customization, I think, in, in terms of the type of workflows that can be accommodated. And I think that's really interesting as well. You make it sound so straightforward, but <laughs> I, I, I know it, I, <laughs> and you, do it, you, do it, you do it incredibly well, but I know that we're dealing with people here. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about knowledge capture and adoption, one of the biggest challenges has to be people. Where is the knowledge existing? How do you get it out of people's heads or out of their computers? Sort of what are the challenges you've seen and do you have any tricks that you've used to be able to, to get around them or, or to build past them? Yeah, people are awesome, right? <laughs> yeah, they are awesome. <laughs> and it would be a boring world without them. It's true. It's true. And there are a lot of challenges when it comes to knowledge management. There's the challenge of sort of knowing what you have and what you don't have. There's the challenge of what is structured and not structured and what should be structured. The evaluation of what's important And that can be very challenging because different people will have different opinions about that. So you always have to kind of wrestle with the what do we need to focus on first and how do we, you know, how do we prioritize? In terms of tricks and tips, I guess I would say, I don't know if it's really tips or tricks. I mean, it's it's more about just having real communication with people and being very transparent with people. I mean, that's at least how I've done it, where we see that there is a problem and we can recommend, you know, what needs to be done. But, you know, maybe there's there's data cleanup involved and, you know, everybody's favorite thing to do. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, say, say you, know, you have a cleanup to move over to a new record system or something, which is something that we just did recently. And, you know, nobody, nobody wants to clean that up. Nobody wants to move their stuff from email over to the, you know, iManage because that's a lot of work and they've had years of putting things together. But it's really just about appreciating the work that needs to be done and showing that appreciation to the people that have to do it because, you know, that's, that's not what their job is. You know, this is just something extra that they have to do and, you know, appreciating them for doing it being really transparent about why we have to do it and what the benefits of that are going to be. Because again, you're working with a bunch of very smart people and, you know, they, they will understand what the benefits are in terms of security and, you know, being able to convey that to clients and feeling safe about their data and being able to find the things that they need. But, you know, you just have to talk to them about it. As you've brought more technology and more automation techniques into the practice, Talk a little bit more about some of the change management goals that undergird the adoption phase. You, you talked a little bit about how getting people to change to the technology is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Sometimes. Not always. Sometimes they just jump right on it. And again, I think that is about how you present it, how you communicate it, how you make it accessible. I think all of those things are very important in change management. I mean, I will say this over and over again, like all problems are communication problems and change management falls into that as well. I think if the message is communicated appropriately, 
things go a lot more smoothly. I mean, look, there, there are always going to be bumps in the road, you know, with the technology and rollouts and making things work. But if the communication happens, everybody understands the benefit, everybody understands why we're doing it and everyone's on board with that. And, you know, that involves a lot of planning ahead of time, <laughs> you know, that, that you have to sort of set that stage. And if that's the case and you have a, you know, again, a plan that is communicated and that people understand and you start rolling that out, then I think that there's there's a lot less of a, of a challenge. Let's stay on the communication theme. Any change management program, any knowledge management program requires investment from the firm, which in terms of getting the investment requires communication and building the case because they're... Mm-hmm. A business case, sure. A business case. So how do you think through, how do you support the business case for knowledge management for what you're doing? Well, there's a few things. So first, I think it it involves a good understanding of the work that the firm does, as well as the tools that are out there. And being in communication with your users and to kind of understand what are they doing in terms of their work? What is their workflow like? Where are they having some challenges? Where would they like to see some improvements? Finding those tools doing a fairly high level look before you sort of bring a bunch of people in, finding out the pricing right up front. I know that's not always the case, but I always do that because what's the point? (laughs) It's like, let's not waste anybody's time. And having practitioners look at it a little bit, you know, see if they like it initially, you know, and then start saying, okay, if you do like it, let's look at our budget. Let's look at other projects that are out there because a firm is going to have to weigh multiple projects and this one may be a priority. This one may not be a priority. You know, some firms I think are more flexible about their budgetary restraints than others. So if it's something that is more, you know, conservative in terms of budgets, you know, you may need to wait another year until you can actually accommodate for it. You keep in contact with your business executives, of course, at all times about what you're doing, what the feedback is so that they are also in the loop. And, you know, often what I'll do is I'll do an RFP and, you know, to the vendors, because I think it saves a lot of time and, you know, ask a bunch of questions, get that all set. And that way we can direct demos or, or, you know, POCs or trials accordingly based on sort of what we're trying to focus on. And, you know, if we get the buy-in, you know, then it becomes a negotiation and price. And then we work on a rollout plan. And that can vary depending on how big or small the solution is. Fair enough. Let me change topics a little bit. You're also the co-host together with Greg of one of the best uh, podcasts, certainly one of my favorite podcasts, The Geek and Review. No, thank you. You've been doing it for three years, which I don't know if you were the first podcast out there in the legal legal tech, legal change, whatever you want to call it, space. But if not the first, certainly one of the first. Tell me the genesis of the idea, because it's been a fa- it's a fabulous podcast. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really glad that that you like it. And, and coming from you, it's it's actually that's a that's a really great compliment because um, your podcast is is wonderful. And in terms of how it started. So there's sort of a couple things. So the Three Geeks platform was a blogging platform that had been going on for many years and was well known, well regarded. It had sort of gotten a little, you know, I'll say stale just because people weren't publishing as much. You know, I think people were busy. 
And so that's one part of, of the puzzle. The other part was I mentioned that I was, you know, I had a broadcasting degree and it's not ever something that I really used. And, you know, I've always kind of felt bad about that. You know, I always enjoyed doing that. And I had started taking voiceover lessons earlier, like maybe about a year before. So I was sort of looking at that as sort of a side gig, possibly. And so that got me very interested in it, you know, sort of resurrected that passion, got me very interested again. And hang hang on, what are voiceover lessons? Oh, so so basically, I mean, I don't know if you know any actors or any voiceover actors. I don't. You don't know any. Okay. Well, I will tell you that actors, voiceover actors are constantly honing their craft. They are constantly attending workshops. They are constantly attending sessions to improve and learn new skills. And and it's one of the things I love about that community. They always are trying to learn and do better. So I took lessons. It's called the VO Dojo. Put a plug out there for the VO Dojo. And uh, they are based in California. And they have, it's a dojo. So it's like levels. It's like different belts. And so you kind of go through the whole program. And then you are, I guess you're a black belt. And then you also have the opportunity to put together a reel of your work. And you can start sending it out. And so I was doing that. That got me very fired up about this. And I had started hearing about podcasts and I thought, that's it. That will resurrect this. I personally didn't like want to do a whole lot of writing because it's like I'm doing so much writing at work. It's like, I don't want to do any more writing, <laughs> but I want, but I want to do this. And so the Geek and Review brand, again, very well known. So I, you know, I went to Greg and I'm like, we should do this. And, you know, at first he was he was initially like, eh, you know, but then he came around and, you know, after that, it was just this sort of experimentation phase where we were trying to figure out platforms and how do we do it and what microphones, what recording, you know, so that was fun and challenging at the same time. Right. And, and uh, you know, you will listen to the early ones and they sound a lot different than what they sound like now. But, you know, we're constantly looking at it. We're trying to do things differently. We're talking now a little bit about, I mean, we just did our uh, first live one at Leo Week. Awesome. We've always wanted to do it, but we've always been a little worried, like, okay, how's that going to work? Are we going to be, <laughs> are we going to like lose it or, or what? But it went really well. Now we're looking at maybe doing a live with video, something in Houston we're sort of working on. So, you know, we're constantly looking at kind of new ways of, of approaching it and new ways of, of getting information out to people. You've had many guests over the years. And what surprised you the most and what have you learned from your guests? Because I, I learn an enormous amount from the folks I get a chance to talk to just to listen to them. It's, it's inspiring to me. And I'm sure you've had the same reaction. Well, I mean, you, you certainly learn just a variety of what's going on that I don't think you'd ever have the chance to keep up with otherwise. You know, many of the folks that we have on, I mean, they, you know, they work in innovative spaces that may somehow touch, I mean, they touch on legal and they may somehow touch on what I do at the firm, but you know, I don't know that I would hear about them otherwise, you know, and any, you know, like some of these A to J types of, of things or some of the innovative things that are going on at the schools, you know, that, that might be something that I would fairly, you know, pretty easily miss. So it's, I think it's wonderful to have, you know, your finger on the pulse of what's going on and be justified in reaching out to these people and saying, hey, you know, we'd like to have a conversation with you. And, you know, so I, I think that that is just, just something that is very, very valuable. 
There is fascinating stuff going on in the A to J and law school space, isn't there? It's true. I've had the same reaction. It's funny. It's like I've had some conversations where, you know, knowledge management and innovation, often people will say that that the EU is kind of ahead of the game there as opposed to the US. But actually, the innovation in law schools is ahead in the US as opposed to the EU. So I can't say whether that's that's true or not, but those are conversations that I've been having. Yeah, I find the conversations with some of the folks in the law school space to be a fascinating mix of excitement and innovation and frustration. All of the things that folks like us encounter every day and working in in law firm environment, but it seems it seemed heightened in the law school environment. I mean, I think starting innovation there is fantastic because, you know, we know that the law school model is a little broken in terms of what attorneys need to know coming out of school. And so I think this innovation push is great because you get students involved in this thought process from the get-go. And then they get into their organizations and they start talking about those things. They start asking questions. They start wanting to develop or use some of the solutions that, you know, we've been talking about. And I think kind of that ground up movement is really where we're going to see the change because they're going to direct it. It's fascinating you say that. I've sometimes taught classes at law schools on things like innovation and change. And I get that question. Okay, we come out of law school excited about it and we go into a big law firm that moves very slowly. How do we drive change? And it sounds like you you tap into that energy to help accomplish stuff. I do. And, you know, I think organizations are smart to include some of these, you know, up and comers, maybe even senior associates are very, you know, new partners because, you know, they're the ones that really want to make, you know, are incentivized to make the change and and who can see the value for the future. In terms of, of innovation, I mean, I have to always modify my myself on this. You know, I see what's in the news and I'm like kind of thinking over here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm way out. I'm way out. Like I'm, I'm always like three years ahead of the curve in terms of, well, that's really interesting. And then three years later, everybody starts starts adopting it. So I have to be careful myself to basically appreciate what I'm able to accomplish, even though it's it's not necessarily that type of scale. And in my former role and with, with some of the folks that I worked with on my team, I really learned to appreciate incremental change. That change is sort of about building blocks. And, you know, you you have to get buy-in for something. You want to start, you know, relatively small in a way that's not going to sort of send a shock to the system for people. And then build the trust, build upon that, you know, have a plan that's like, you know, we may start with one aspect of contract management, but then we're going to continue to build on that and build on that and build on that until we have, you know, this complete system of how it works. It's not something you're going to do in a month or a year, but, you know, it is something that you will build over time and you'll be able to see the benefits. So, you know, I have to, I have to remember, you know, play the long game. I remember we had a consultant in whose name I've now forgotten. We were years ago talking about change and change in law firms. And he equated it to how you train a pigeon. (laughs) So you've got a pigeon in one corner of a box and you're trying to train it to get to the other corner of the box. Where do you put the grain? You don't put it in the other corner of the box because that's too far from the pigeon. Put it incrementally and train the pigeon to move up. My partners didn't really appreciate being equated to pigeons, (laughs) pigeons, but the point was a good one. and, And you've made it more eloquently than that. The point is you start small. I mean, you, you start 
I mean, look, sometimes there's these giant transformations and sometimes that happens, but more often than not, it's the smaller ones that you build on because, you know, you don't want to completely disrupt your organization in most instances. I mean, you, you know, work has to continue, business has to continue. So I appreciate the analogy. And I'll point out that people often say that lawyers don't like change. And and I, I don't know that like they don't want to try new things. And I don't, I've never really found that to be true. What I have found is that, you know, you have to pick the things that are going to make a difference to them and you have to position it in, in a way that this is how this is going to either streamline your process, reduce the amount of non-billable work that you have to do. This is how you're going to generate more income by using it. So, I mean, you have to, you know, you have to just basically position this in a way that makes sense to them. And I mean, I think that would be for anybody. No, I think that's right. And I like the idea of starting small because lawyers have tighter risk tolerances than most professions because that's how we're trained. Right. And so starting small minimizes the risk and hopefully shows uh, the ability to gain some value from the product. Mm-hmm. Well, Marlene, we've run a bit over. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you very much. I really had a good time. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.